Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Over the course of the years, the number of people who have grown older and are now facing issues of dementia has become a very real problem for society, both politically, economically, and, of course, medically. Mark Brody is a neurologist in Palm Beach County in Florida who has done a great deal of work over the years dealing with the development of new treatments for dementia. Dr. Brody, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. One of the major problems that we seem to have is that there are different types of dementia, and that, I assume, would complicate finding a treatment, assuming that different treatments are needed for these different types of dementias. What are the more common types, and what sort of research is being done in looking at how to treat them or prevent them? That's a complex question, I realize. Let's get started with that. Let me put it in context. Dementia is a umbrella term for people who have difficulty with memory in at least two of the other cognitive spheres, word-finding difficulty, language, visual-spatial abilities to see things in space and time and directions, their mood, their intellect, their judgment, and their ability to perform normal activities of daily living, things they usually do. And that whole package gets worse over time, and that's dementia. And under that umbrella, far and away, the most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's type dementia, about 75%. So sometimes people get confused between dementia and Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia. Behind that, there is vascular dementia would be number two, and that's from a series of little strokes. And then there's the combination of Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. And then we go down the line less often, Parkinson's and some rare syndromes, frontal temporal dementia and Lewy body variant dementia. The technical terms don't matter so much. The problem is the brain is degenerating and it presents in a syndrome where people just can't function and it gets worse over time. And ultimately, for the most part, especially with Alzheimer's, everybody gets worse and everybody dies. There are no exceptions. The cause of the basic manifestation vary a great deal. They may look similar, but internally, chemically, it's a different process. And I would assume that complicates the research in terms of trying to find a mechanism to prevent, slow down, reverse dementia. For Alzheimer's, and it's, let's stick with Alzheimer's. Very good. If you look at a shape of a football, on one end is what we now classify as the amyloid opathies, where the primary problem is this abnormal protein that builds up in the brain that is toxic to the circuits. And in the middle is a combination of amyloid and little strokes. And then the other end is a stroke-like syndrome, usually because of metabolism. Now, even in the context of what we call garden variety Alzheimer's, that is a collage of probably a handful of separate distinct diseases that we can't make the distinction between them. So the Disney version right now is there's two bad proteins. There's the amyloid protein and the tau protein, TAU. The point is, gee, this like there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly amyloid. And we need amyloid. We make it. But for the most part, we can clear it. But the ugly amyloid, we can't clear. Either we make too much of it or we can't clear it fast enough. And when it builds up, the memory circuits and the circuits in general where it gets deposited start to melt away. Do we know why the brain can't clear itself of the amyloid? Is that part of the process that's being looked at? It is to a degree 
the life cycle of amyloid has been defined. So we make a load of amyloid during a 24-hour period, and we usually clear it in 8 to 12 hours. And we think that it's the inability for carrying proteins to actually take the bad amyloid and clear it in the spinal fluid. A lot of people are globalists, lumpers or splitters. And so a lot of people, I'm in that camp, who are lumpers, who say that generally speaking, neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and frontal temporal dementia, are a dysfunction of the axonal transport system. And so when these bad proteins usually fall off the track, they become some sort of inclusions of the brain that are toxic to the brain. Generally speaking, we make too much of it or we can't carry enough or can't stay on track. Is there a general sense of when this appears that by the mid-70s, early 80s, a very large percentage of people started to show signs of dementia? We now have a notion known as mild cognitive impairment, and it seems to be that younger and younger people are being put under this umbrella. Do we yet have a good statistic about when this begins to become a physiologic problem? People who develop Alzheimer's are developing these amyloid and tau proteins that are toxic anywhere from 10 to 15 years before they ever get a symptom. So there's the spectrum of normal brain aging and then this term called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, that's the no man's land between normal brain aging and Alzheimer's. At age 60, about 8 to 10% of people have mild cognitive impairment. And of those people who have mild cognitive impairment, and that category keeps building every five years of mild cognitive impairment, about 70 to 80% are going to evolve into early Alzheimer's at a rate of about 15% per year. Now, in the old days, which was about five years ago, we didn't know who was who, and we would just follow people every 12 months and see it was changing. On well, the new days, we can actually find out using new PET scans, that's positron emission transaxial tomography, and if you say that really fast, nobody gives you anything. But in English, it means this. We can take little tagging agents and do a special kind of scan, like a CAT scan of the brain, and we can actually see the amyloid, the bad amyloid, light up like little light bulbs. And so when we look at a person, we see they have memory problems, and it looks like and smells like Alzheimer's. And we do this scan, and we see the amyloid, the bad amyloid, light up like light bulbs. We are about 95 to 96% accurate to autopsy studies. So this has been a huge paradigm shift. Before, in the old days, five years ago, the only way to positively, absolutely know if somebody had Alzheimer's was to wait till they passed away and did an autopsy or rarely biopsy their brain, which nobody's really keen about. And so when we were looking at does somebody have Alzheimer's five or six years ago, we were in the order of even the best people in the country right 70% of the time. So we've gone to about 95% accuracy between this new amyloid scan, which is FDA approved, and looking at levels of amyloid and tau in the spinal fluid. Is there anything we can do to prevent the accumulation of the abnormal, or shall we say the bad amyloid? We're missing something that could stop the process or slow up the process. Is there anything? Having parents with good genes is a good way to start, designer genes. Not getting older would be helpful, but the alternative's not so hot. The risk factors for excessive and bad amyloid production are the same risk factors for stroke. And since I started out earlier in my career as a stroke critical care neurologist, there are modifiable risk factors. It turns out that people who exercise reduce their risk of Alzheimer's. It turns out that people 
who control diabetes or delay it from metabolic syndrome, which was like pre-diabetes, reduce their risk, lowering cholesterol, modifying blood pressure so it's in the normal ranges. And the Framingham study has told us what those ranges for different ages should be and stimulating the brain. So there was a big study called the NUN study, and it told us about how activity and interaction in a community also changes how the brain develops and changes the relative risk of getting dementia and specifically Alzheimer's. And this is working under the notion of the amyloid theory of Alzheimer's. Let's say that it has begun to accumulate signs of memory loss and the other manifestations that you discussed earlier are beginning to present themselves. Do we have treatments that we can give to someone that can slow up the process, reverse the process, or in some way mitigate it so it doesn't cause the burden that it does have on the person and the family? The short answer is no, and the longer answer is no. So right now we have band-aids, small parachutes. So if someone were to get Alzheimer's, and we start one of the four drugs, the first three being cousins. You may have heard those in the news, Aricept, Exelon, the pill in the patch, and something called galantamine. And they are cousins. They all look the same. They all work the same way. And what they do is they try to keep the level of a neurotransmitter, acetylcholine. The name's not important, but it's the neurotransmitter that greases the memory circuits. That's the Disney version. It tries to keep them up. But the problem is the cells that they're plugging into are degenerating. So you're jumping out of a plane with a parachute, and you do get some bang for your buck early, but you're still going to the ground. And you can add this other one called Nemenda to one of the first three when people get moderate to severe. But none of those drugs has a direct impact on either amyloid or tau, the toxic proteins. The other question is, do we have a treatment now that affects tau and is approved or effective? And the answer is no. Are we getting close? Yes. Am I a believer in the amyloid hypothesis? No. But it is a target that we think we can modify. You're not a believer. Where do you think the problem lies? I think amyloid to a degree and tau are epiphenomena. Can you explain an epiphenomena to people? What it means is they're markers of something that's occurring. Let me give you a stark, dramatic example. When I went to the clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease in Toulouse, France, about four years ago, everybody was there, all the big pharmaceutical companies, the top investigators, the academics, and the last speaker was the head of neurology at the University of Tel Aviv, and his topic was, why haven't we found anything that works yet? So he went up to the podium and he said, you can't go to the cemetery and rip up the headstones and resurrect the dead. We're too late. And he walked off the stage. So the premise being that these amyloid plaques in the tau, neurofibrillary tangles, this neuronal garbage that's toxic to the brain, they are remnants. They are like picking up bullets at a civil war site. The war is over and these are remnants. Now, There are times when it's a battle of numbers before the amyloid plaque forms, there are little spaghetti fibrils that start to stick together that are also toxic before they stick together and then start to fold and become the plaque. So we're really working on can we get to the process and modify it before they get folded up in plaques. While they're still firing bullets, can we call a truce? So we're honing in on very early stages of both tau production and clearance and amyloid production and clearance. So we think 
if we can affect the process rather than trying to glom onto a plaque and pull the scab off and see a scar underneath, that maybe we can affect and modify the progression of the disease. People who have been following this have heard that there have been attempts to deal with antibodies against the plaques and the other proteins, and yet it doesn't seem to work, or at least from my knowledge, if anything, it seems quite limited. What's your experience and and observations in terms of dealing with the antibody approach towards? Well, there's been a number of monoclonal antibodies to amyloid, different parts of amyloid and different parts of the life cycle. So this means you engineer an antibody to glom on to amyloid, either when it's the spaghetti fibrils or as they're sticking together in their little clumps or even the mature plaque itself. What we found in general terms is we haven't had a positive study and we've done big studies, but what we have seen is a trend. If we get people early which means there's not as much plaque and not as much spaghetti fibrils around. By deduction, not as many synaptic connections, networks have gone down. And that's really what those amyloid plaques mean. There's been a lot of synaptic network damage. So if you can get people early when there hasn't been that much in the way of synaptic damage and start to clear the amyloid, the brain has an ability to adapt to neuroplasticity for the circuits that are going down. And so we find that there is some real hope if we get people very early in the mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer's stage, that there is some real promise that these engineered antibodies may really modify the disease. How does one know that one is in an early enough stage that some of these treatments may be beneficial to postpone and slow down the process? What does someone look for in themselves or in a family member? Therein lies the rub. A lot of times the person, him or herself, does not have any significant insight into them having a problem at all. And sometimes they do. That makes it more difficult. If a person has some insight, listen, I can't do all the things I used to do a couple years ago, and I think it's getting worse. That means almost always it deals with their having trouble with their short-term memory. Most often that people end up at a doctor or neurologist is that they're having trouble with or their issues in around behavior. Bob was a sweet man, but now he's cantankerous. He's got a short fuse. He's had a little memory problem, but these issues I can't deal with, there must be something wrong. So the simple answer is if people around you are saying something's not right, that's the puff of smoke for people to get evaluated. And so then the art is, are those mild symptoms, those things that are alerting the family, do they mean that there is the start of Alzheimer's and what we want to do is get one when there's a puff of smoke? And our ability to say, this is early Alzheimer's, this is a pathologic state versus this is normal part of aging, and Bob was always cantankerous, and he's a little more cantankerous, we've come a long way. There's been a paradigm shift. We're really pretty good at making that diagnosis, and now we have objective ways to say, and Bob has amyloid in his brain, and he's dripping it in the spinal fluid tau and amyloid, and we know with high degree of certainty that he really has Alzheimer's. One of the things that this brings up, obviously, is that when someone who is 60, 70, 80 years of age, or any age actually, and they're showing signs of cognitive interference, is what are the medications are they on? Are they eating healthily? Is there a depression? There's a multitude of other variables that have to be looked at and ruled out. 
this, in my mind, flips back to the notion of the acetylcholine issues because many of the medications that are used for a whole sundry of other issues have anticholinergic qualities and can complicate things. So it must make it even more complicated for you when you have to look at someone who needs a particular blood pressure medicine or whatever. Where's the balance? What do you do? How do you approach it? I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. The reassuring message is that not all memory and thinking problems mean Alzheimer's. So a lot of times we can have problems that are relatively simple and fixable. So you start off with a premise, there's something there that needs looking at, and we're going to find anything that's fixable. So in your field, depression can often look like dementia. You know, people, if they're depressed, the brain's depressed, the function of the brain's depressed, and it can look like Alzheimer's. There's a lot of medications, as you've said, that in themselves or interacting with other medications that can give dementia-like symptoms that are fixable. And then there are a lot of metabolic diseases like thyroid function, vitamin deficiencies, the history of trauma, seizures. It really takes somebody, like the old days, it's like a Bogart movie. We round up the usual suspects and we chip away, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Sometimes it's important to know what it isn't. And then we're left with a block of what it is in a category. And then we chip away like somebody carving out statue. And we see really for our state of art, what the statue really looks like. And then we make decisions based on that. There is also in the world of alternative medicine or complementary medicine a tremendous amount of discussion about the use of vitamins and cinnamon and just all sorts of things that are supposed to help. I know a lot of people go to the stores and take tons of these things. I'm not so sure that it helps. But then once in a while, somebody's going to come back and say, oh, it really helped my mother. But we don't really then know if perhaps it was a true dementia. It becomes very complex. Once again, I'm passing it to you, your observations and thoughts about all these alternative modalities. So the short answer is that if there was something out there that worked, I just give it to people. So then it takes us to the second part. Are there supplements, nutraceuticals that show some promise in promoting or optimizing brain health, which is different than treating Alzheimer's or preventing Alzheimer's? And the answer is yes. There are supplements with choline in them, citicoline. There is the coconut oils that may show some promise in healthy brain aging. And there's a study going on in early Alzheimer's. We looked at omega-3 fatty acids, and we did a study with the largest vitamin producer in the world, and it was a negative study. So there are things that are sound good, that there's hope. Turmeric is undergoing a big study now because India has a lower incidence of Alzheimer's, and it's part of the spice in curry. So Nobody is discounting things because we're all looking for something and if it works, it works, but we haven't found anything. For instance, the Mediterranean diet has been shown to decrease the rate and incidence of Alzheimer's and the rate of progression. It turns out that it works a lot better if you live in the Mediterranean so you don't have the stresses of modern day life. So that takes us back to stress. So stress in general as a term, also increases the risk of earlier onset and more aggressive Alzheimer's. There are drugs that modify risk. It turns out that meditation is very effective. 
exercise is very effective. Mediterranean diet is effective. But as far as some of the supplements, as far as treating Alzheimer's, with very rare exceptions, we don't have anything yet. The rare exception would be a drug. It's a powder. It's a nutraceutical called Exonum. It's a medium chain fatty acid, ketogenic fatty acid. So what it means in English is this. When the brain works, it runs on two things. It runs on glucose, blood sugar, and oxygen. So that's how it runs. It can also run on high test, which is ketones. The unfortunate thing is to really get effective levels of ketones, you'd have to be an out-of-control diabetic. So the trade-off isn't worth it. But it turns out that you can put these ketones in a powder and take it, and it basically makes the machinery of your cells, the mitochondria, more efficient. And there is some evidence that even in Alzheimer's that this kind of nutraceutical is effective. So we're actually doing a study with it, but a lot of us in the Alzheimer's world will try this as part of our ammunition. And that has shown some promise. You know, as a group, we're not, we're health, we have a healthy sense of skepticism. But if you have a big modern TV and the reception's bad and you hit it and everything gets better, we don't really care what happened inside. Talk, please, a little bit about the differences between vascular dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, Lewy body dementia. They, they seem to be of different origins, especially vascular dementia, which is essentially the cell dying because it's not having enough blood. It's a mini-stroke. I remember hydrogen basically increased the size of the blood vessels. You got more oxygen and more food to the cells, and that was supposed to be very helpful. The different dimensions, we seem to be working more with Alzheimer's, which is the most predominant in terms of frequency. What about the vascular and the Lewy body? Vascular dementia means a series of little pinpoint strokes that accumulate. Like if you go to the beach and you say, you know, it looks like the shore's coming back. I'm a little beach erosion. And you go there every day, you don't really notice that it's changing. But if you go there and come back the next year, you say, boy, there's been some big changes. And these little pinpoint strokes start to form patches, and then the patches start to be confluent. And really, it's a disconnection of the fibers that go from the big thinking part of the brain. They start to get disconnected. So a vascular dementia looks, feels, and tastes different than regular garden variety Alzheimer's. But a lot of times, they're mixed. So people are more deer in the headlights. They're slower to react to things. They're flat as far as how they emote and facial expressions. So there's a difference, but about 15% of people with garden variety Alzheimer's have a significant vascular component. So they're mixed up. Lewy body variant Alzheimer's, which is about 15% of people who have Alzheimer's, have a mixture of Parkinsonism and Alzheimer's. Lewy bodies are this little neuronal garbage. They're called Lewy bodies because they stay in a certain way when you look in the brain. They are characteristic of people who have Parkinson's. But in Alzheimer's variant Lewy body disease, they're not just in the movement center parts of the brain. They're all over. In this situation, people have trouble with memory and thinking, and then later on, they get the Parkinsonian trouble with walking, sometimes tremor, stiffness later on. Whereas people who get Parkinson's disease, and when they get to a moderate stage, they often have Parkinson's-related dementia. It's a different kind of dementia. So they clearly have the movement problems first. And later on down the road, five, seven years down the road, about half of them also have problems with memory and thinking. One 
one of the problems that faces many people, many families, I should say, is that when the dementia of whatever origin reaches a certain level, there is often a problem with psychosis. It's scary. It's very scary. And looking at the drug inserts, it looks as if we shouldn't be using any of the antipsychotics to treat these people. But we do because we don't have an alternative. Is it really a psychotic phenomena in the way that it would be if someone was schizophrenic? How would we explain it in a person who's never had anything like this in their entire life, who all of a sudden is thinking that someone's stealing from them? These behavioral changes are unfortunately very common. People have to remember that this is a syndrome, a disease that happens to a person. It's not a group of constellation of symptoms that everybody gets. So whatever the disease does, it does to a person. So generally speaking, if somebody had somewhat of a short fuse and a difficult personality, those features get magnified. So a big part of the brain says no all the time. It's like Austin Powers when he came out of being frozen and he doesn't realize he's saying everything. A lot of people become disinhibited. And so that is a presentation that's very common. Very common as well is apathy. So they're like a bump on a log. They're not depressed. They're not sad. They're not crying. They just don't want to do much. And you essentially have to push them to get going emotionally. A lot of people are depressed, but the delusional thinking, which can include paranoia, and this is a big problem because caregivers will come in, people who are hired, and people will put their money in different places because they're afraid, they're paranoid, somebody's going to take it, and then they can't find it because they don't remember. And then they're accusing caregivers of taking their money. When you start to look around the house, they're hidden in the fridge and under cushions. In each person, it depends on their underlying personality, and now it depends on where are the plaques and where are the tangles and what circuits were involved. It depends where the amyloid and the tau protein get deposited as to what kind of behaviors manifest. But going back to your initial question is, is it different? Are these delusional thinking, these psychotic features different than people who have bipolar disease and people who have schizophrenia? Yes. In the pragmatic sense of the real world, no, because there still is debilitating. We don't have any good drugs that work for delusional psychotic symptoms, and there's an FDA black box warning to use these type of drugs that we use for bipolar disease and schizophrenia. But in reality, trying these drugs, acknowledging the risk, can mean the difference between somebody staying at home or somebody having to be placed in an institution. So we use these drugs, and oftentimes they're very helpful, but they do have risks. We hear too frequently that there is not enough research going on and that perhaps the pharmaceutical companies are looking at other entities, uh, disease entities to deal with. I'm hoping that's not true because as we get older, the number of people facing this, is it's escalating enormously. Do you think that we're still paying enough attention to dementia? Absolutely. I have no fear. The pharmaceutical companies are heavily, literally, and figuratively invested in finding a drug. Thank God for the capitalist system, because whoever wins and whoever gets the first disease-modifying drug, that drug will be the largest revenue-producing drug in the history of man. So there is no effective drug, and everybody from large pharmaceutical companies to medium pharmaceutical companies and developing biotechs have their own version of how to intervene 
or prevent this disease. And that hasn't changed. I remember a teacher getting up and saying that when Fleming discovered penicillin, he walked to his colleagues and said, you know, guys, I think I got something different. I'm looking for the day that we can do that here. Mark Brody is a neurologist in Palm Beach County, Florida. He obviously has spent a great deal of time and knows a great deal about the whole notion of dementia and the various scientific endeavors that are going to make this less of a burden on all of us. Thank you, sir, for being with us. Thanks for having me.